0: Good morning, church. Again, we are trusting Christ. We are treasuring Christ. We are trusting Christ to do the impossible. We are treasuring Him as our deepest delight. That's what defines us as a church. At this time, the uh, children can be dismissed for children's church, for disciple-making. Disciples are being made this morning. Thankful for them. Thankful for the workers. Be praying for them as they go, both for The children, and for those who will be ministering to them. It's good to have them with us. And the text you just heard, Revelation 19, I whispered over to Sarah that's a a crazy text, isn't it? And in many ways it is. And and yet, here's the reason why I'm preaching that this morning. As you know, we have just finished three weeks in John 17, the prayer of Christ for the elect. The plan of salvation unfolded in this glorious, sovereign plan. And as I kept alluding to the end of that plan, I just couldn't help but think it was most fitting to preach on the very end of that plan and actually to see it with our very own eyes. So we will look at the end of all human history from Revelation 19. Again, I want to extend a special welcome to newcomers. You could have been anywhere this morning, but you're here with us And we're glad to serve you in any way we possibly can, always and only for the glory of Christ. But some people in this room, you are fans of mystery novels and mystery movies, aren't you? And the thing about mysteries is that the element of surprise is the most satisfying part of the plot, isn't it? In other words, what makes mystery so intriguing and even irresistible is that you have no idea what the ending will be. And, and the worst possible thing someone could do would be to give away the ending, right? To, to spoil the surprise. You want to be, you want to wait till the end to see the surprise. That, that the surprise at the end, that's what you're waiting for. You see, the surprise at the end that you have no idea what's coming, that is the whole point of a mystery. And yet that's not true. That's not true when it comes to what the end of the world will be like. Because you see, in the endless reaches of eternity past, the triune God has designed a plan of salvation and he has chosen to not keep us in suspense as to what the ending of that plan will be in fact God is more glorified by taking the element of surprise out of the equation and the reason for that is because he wants everyone to know that he has absolute undisputed dominion over everything in the universe he wants everyone to know that in the future even when Satan and the Antichrist are doing their worst that they are playing right into the sovereign hands of God and so the question we we need to know is okay well, then what is the surprise ending of all human history? What is the end of the world? How is this thing going to end? Because guess what? It's not a secret. The surprise ending is that one day in the future, God himself in human flesh will return to earth as a warring, conquering king and he will establish an invincible kingdom on this planet and one day he will rule the universe from a throne in Jerusalem. And when, not if, but when that happens, it will be and he will be everything you have been waiting for. You see, that is the surprise ending of all human history. That's how this whole thing called history is going down. Do you know what that's called? That's called the return of the king, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and it is not a secret. And the second coming of Christ to claim his throne is exactly what we see unleashed in the text this morning, and it is glorious. And when he returns, it will literally physically be the the title bout of the universe. And it's in the book of Revelation where God has given us front row seats to watch this thing go down. And make no mistake, when he returns, it will not be to negotiate. He, he's, not, he's not coming to make deals with his enemies. He's not coming to, to uh, uh, take prisoners. He's not coming to be voted in by the people in some election. Rather, with a sharp sword in his mouth and a rod of iron in his hand, he is coming to conquer. He is coming to vanquish. He is coming to, he is coming to slaughter the forces of evil upon the earth, and it will be war. See, this event, which will literally, physically, visibly happen on this planet will be the captivating crescendo of human history. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, you will be there to enjoy it. And I'll just tell you, church, we need this. We need to see this this morning. Because am I not wrong, am I not right in saying, rather, that the last two years have been absolutely exhausting? As we look out under the world, the chaos and the tumult and the increasing coldness and hostility and danger and bombings and unprecedented violence and greed and deception and corruption. Oh yeah, make no mistake, this is exactly what we need. What we need is a ferocious, breathtaking display of a God who cannot be tamed. What needs to happen to us is a trauma to the soul because of what we see unfold in the pages of Scripture. You see, what we need this morning is for God to spoil the surprise ending of all human history. Because I don't know, I don't know if you realize this or not, but, but the kind of world that you are inheriting, church, is not friendly to people like you. You're not welcome here. You, you understand that, right? Right? And the 20th century was the bloodiest in human history, and I don't, I don't really see things changing much in this one. Do you? And I don't think it's being paranoid or alarmist or exaggerating to say that hard times are coming for the church. I mean, the waves of persecution have been at low tide in America for centuries while our comrades in other countries get beheaded for their allegiance to Christ. You see, that is normal. This is abnormal. This is the exception. We've had it so easy here in this Disneyland of Christianity for so long, but mark my words, the gates of comfort and security are closing in America, and my, oh, my, they are closing fast. But do not be afraid, little flock, because God has chosen not to keep us in suspense as to what the ending of his plan will be. And how he's done that is by showing us the unequaled greatness of Jesus Christ when he returns at the end of the age. And so because we live in an age of terror, I can't think of anything better to give you this morning from God's word than the breathtaking supremacy of Jesus Christ who will single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. And where that's found is Revelation 19, 11 through 21, the same text that Larry just read. Here's where we're going. If you like taking notes, keeping track. Here's where we're going. I want you to see from our text two riveting features. Two riveting features of the second coming designed to comfort your souls in an age of terror. That's where we're headed. Two riveting features of the second coming designed to comfort your souls in an age of terror. And so without further ado, the first riveting feature is this. Number one, The exhibition of the king. The exhibition of the king. Now, one of the most thrilling aspects of the second coming is how different it will be from the first coming. There there will be very little resemblance between the two. Same person, radically different circumstances. You see, at the first coming, he was the lamb slain, but at the second coming, he will be the lion that slaughters. At the first coming, he was executed by his enemies. At the second coming, he will be the executioner of his enemies. He was crushed in the place of rebels, but when he returns, he will be the king who does the crushing. And by the time we get to Revelation 19, the church will have already been raptured and be with Christ in his all-satisfying presence. For seven long years, the earth will have been under the seemingly undisputed dominion of the Antichrist and his false prophet. The, The earth will be drenched with the blood of martyrs. The world will be in shambles because of God's catastrophic earth shattering judgments. And just like when it seems that evil has triumphed and the world can take no more, it's then that the king will come. In verses 11 through 16, we see 12 descriptions, glorious descriptions of what the king will look like and be like when he comes. And for the good of your own souls, we're going to look at every single one of them. Description number one of the king, the grand entrance of the king, the grand entrance of the king. Look at the text in verse 11, and he says, and I saw the heaven having been opened and behold, a white horse and the one who sits upon it is called faithful and true. Now notice the science defying act where God tears open the heavens. The very atmosphere is ripped open to make way for the grand entrance of the king because if he's going to return, and he is, he's not going to do so covertly and quietly like some undercover secret agent. No, he is going to explode into the world and every eye will see him, which is exactly what Christ said he would do in Matthew 24. Do do you remember? He says immediately after the tribulation of those days, The sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give its light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken and then the sign of the Son of Man shall appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth shall mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. That is exactly what this is. The question is, can you trust God the timing of the king. Can you hang on and trust him just a little bit longer for his sovereign timing to make things right? Because I know, I get it, it's hard to hang on. It feels hard to wait, but trust me, there will be a reckoning. There will be vengeance. There will be blood. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not for a thousand years, but there will be justice but only in the exact moment that God has ordained. And so can you trust the king for his sovereign timing to make things right? Description number two of the king. The triumphal entry of the king. The triumphal entry of the king. In dramatic fashion, the king enters into the world through the gaping hole in the atmosphere. Look at verse 11 again. And I saw heaven having been opened, here it is, and behold, a white horse, and the one who sits upon it is called Faithful and True. Now, if you remember, the week before Christ died, he entered into Jerusalem sitting upon what? A donkey, which, as you know, is an animal that displays humility and meekness and gentleness, but here he does not come sitting on a donkey, but on a white horse a steed. And you know what sitting upon a white horse in those days was designed to signify? It can only mean one thing. Triumph and victory and sovereignty and supremacy. That's what it means. And yet what makes the scene so odd is that in the ancient Roman world, you parade through town on a white horse only after you've won the victory, Christ shows up to the battle already riding a white horse, meaning what? Meaning, Meaning that the victory is already his before the battle has even begun. It's over. It's over. Victory is already his. All bets are off on this one. This is no contest. This is no competition. This is going to be an absolute domination and a vindication of his glory which has been trampled for centuries. The question is, do you believe this? Do you believe that victory and authority and supremacy already belong to the one who is sitting on the white horse? Do you believe him when he says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? Because whenever you find yourself fearful or anxious or angry or terrified or overwhelmed, I simply say to you, remember the white horse because victory is already his. Description number three of the king. Description number three, the glorious titles of the king. The glorious titles of the king. John moves from the entrance of the king to the character of the king. Look at verse 11 again. He says, and the one who sits upon the white horse is called faithful and true. Here John reveals a few titles of the conquering king. And John notes that he is called faithful and true. Meaning what? Well, to be faithful means that Christ as God possesses the perfection of always acting in a way that is absolutely consistent with his infinite character. In other words, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can always be counted on to be exactly who he has revealed himself to be in the pages of Scripture. He's not flaky or flighty or some fair-weather Messiah. No, he is faithful. He is unwavering in every single promise he has ever made in the pages of Scripture. He will keep and he will fulfill in full. But not only is he faithful, John also says that he is true. And to be true means that Jesus Christ as God is the physical embodiment and incarnation of absolute truth. He himself is the truth. He is the sovereign one who defines reality and he answers to no one. There's no law book to which he looks to consult what is right. There's no almanac to which he looks to know what the facts are. There's no guild to which he appeals to know what is true and right and faithful and good. He himself is the standard of what is good and right and true and faithful and beautiful. The question is, do you admire him? Do you admire Jesus Christ as the one who is faithful and true, do you admire him as the most important reality and and trustworthy and beautiful person in the universe? The question is, are you infatuated with him? because that is the very meaning of life itself. Description number four of the king. Number four, the mission of the king. The mission of the king. And John portrays for us exactly what that mission is. Look again at verse 11. And the one who sits upon the white horse is called faithful and true. Here it is. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Do you see that? When Christ returns, he won't merely judge and wage war, but he will do so in righteousness. In righteousness, not a small detail. This is really big. Do you know what righteousness is? Do you know what it means for him to be righteous? To be righteous means that he supremely values what is supremely valuable, and what is supremely valuable is his own glory. For Christ to be righteous means that he has an unswerving allegiance to his own glory. See, if you are righteous, that means you have an unswerving allegiance to his glory. For him to be righteous, it's the same. It means that he will do whatever it takes to uphold and preserve and display his infinite worth and value. And one of the things that does that, believe it or not, is judgment and war. You see, when Christ comes to judge, he will vindicate his glory, which has been trampled for centuries. When he shows up, he will give out death sentences to his enemies and there will be no appeals, no bail, no defense, no plea bargains, no negotiations, no discussions, just the indisputable verdict from his sovereign throne. And not only will he judge, but it says in the text that in righteousness he will wage war. There is not another way to interpret this. When he comes, it will be conflict. It will be combat. That means he will show up to execute and slaughter the forces of evil upon the earth. When he shows up, it will be a holocaust against evil. It will be war. The question is, do you tremble before him? not like some hideous monster who any second is gonna lash out at you, but do you tremble before him as the most priceless treasure and reality in the universe with whom you would never trifle nor treat as common? Description number five of the king. Number five, the all-seeing vision of the king. The all-seeing vision of the king, because do you know what all of the horror films of Hollywood and the scary movies they make. You know what that tells me about Hollywood? They have no idea what real scary is. But John does because he saw it. Look at verse 12. And his eyes are as a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. Notice first that his eyes are a flame of fire. For those who have hated him and mocked him and belittled him as mere legend and folklore, when he shows up, he will be terrifyingly real. To have eyes like flaming torches means that as God, He is all-seeing and all-knowing. Nothing escapes the notice of His piercing, penetrating vision. He instantaneously sees right down into the most hidden corners of the human soul. He knows the deepest secrets of the human heart. This is this is Hebrews 4.13. There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. It's a Psalm 44, 21, and 22. For if we forgot the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart the scorching eyes of Jesus Christ express the mind exploding insight of the one who is sovereign, not only over all of the events of human history, but also of every single individual moment in your lives. And so the question is, if that's true, and it is, do you trust him? Do you trust him? Not merely do you affirm his existence, but, do, but does his infinite knowledge over everything free you to trust him to do what he does best, namely rule the universe with absolute ease? Or are you prone to fear, and anxiety, and worry, and panic attacks, and taking matters into your own hands? Guess what? There's no need. He doesn't need your help because he has everything covered and everything is going according to play on Description number six of the king. Number six, the sovereignty of the king. The sovereignty of the king. And spend time around me if you dare. But if you do, you will quickly find out that the meticulous sovereignty of God over every detail of life is one of my favorite doctrines in Holy Scripture. And the sovereignty of Christ is exactly what we see displayed in verse 12. Look what he says. And his eyes are as a flame of fire, and on his head, here it is, are many diadems. Do you see that? When he comes again, he will have many diadems on his head. A a diadem, you see, is a kingly crown. And here it's not at all for decoration or the mere appearance of royalty. Christ didn't fetch this crown out of the dress-up box of heaven for playtime. No, Christ, rather, a a diadem speaks of authority and power and sovereignty and supremacy. And the fact that he wears many diadems is a graphic, poetic way to say that Jesus Christ has absolute, undisputed dominion over everything. Everything is in his jurisdiction. The whole universe is his, and he governs everything that comes to pass. Make no mistake, there is no such thing as coincidences. There's no such thing as accidents. There's no such thing as karma or good luck or chance or random. No, every single flip of the coin and every dice rolled in Las Vegas is determined by one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want to know is, do you love his kingly authority? Do you love His kingly authority? Is the sovereignty of Jesus Christ a sweet aroma and refuge for your soul? Do you believe that He has control over every single moment of every event, including sin and evil? I'm not saying, do you understand that? I'm saying, do you love that? Because without the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, our only option is to lose our mind. Description number seven of the king. Number seven, the mysterious name of the king. The mysterious name of the king, because notice what John reveals, rather doesn't reveal in verse 12. He says that he has a name written upon him that no one knows except himself. Isn't that interesting? John can see a name written upon Christ, but the only one who knows what it means is Christ himself. Well, what does that mean? Why is that significant? Well, you know in Scripture, names mean something. They reveal character. They reveal who you are. And at the very least, to have a mysterious name that no one knows reminds us that there are undiscovered depths to the glory of Christ that mankind has never even dreamed There are things about Him, glorious, staggering realities about Jesus Christ that must remain hidden until the end of the age. And most of them you have probably never even imagined. You see, get this, no one masters Christ. No one gets to the end of Him. No no one gets to the bottom of who He is. No, the full arsenal and spectrum of his perfections are yet to be revealed and it will take all eternity for Christ to be done unfolding the riches of his glory to us, which is another way of saying he will never be done doing that. Description number eight of the king, the wardrobe of the king. The wardrobe of the king, because like all kings, Christ wears a kingly robe, but this isn't your... Typical garment worn by royalty. Look at verse 13. And he has been clothed with a garment having been dipped in blood. And his name has been called the Word of God. This is terrifying. I mean, this, this, is, this is shocking. The warrior king shows up for battle with his garment already drenched in blood. And, and many people think that this is, this is uh, his blood shed for sinners. It is not his blood. It is the blood of his enemies. Do you feel this? King Jesus shows up to the battle with the blood of his enemies already splattered on his garments, which is a terrifying way to say that the battle is already over before it has even begun. The blood dripping from his garments anticipates and looks forward to the certainty of a violent massacre about to be unleashed. Rebels and enemies of the high king, beware. There's a new sheriff in town and you are about to have his boot upon your neck. At this point, we need to be very careful. We need to be very careful here And we need to ask ourselves the question, do we get grace? Do we understand grace this morning? Do we understand that it should be our blood splattered on the garments of the king? Or do we have a sense of entitlement that we deserve better? Do we, do we feel disgusted by other people, some sense of superiority as if there was something about us that made us more appealing to God to save than to others? Because you know what they say, it's easier to cry against a thousand sins of people outside than to mortify one sin in your own soul. Newsflash. We don't deserve better, and we are not more appealing And the only, and I repeat, the only reason why it won't be our blood on His garments is because of sovereign grace alone. Description number nine of the king. Number nine, the deity of the king. The deity of the king. Because you you notice, no doubt, in verse 13 it says that His name has been called the Word of God. You see that? And you know, this isn't the first time that Christ has been called the Word. In John's breathtaking introduction to his gospel, reread chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And for Christ to be the Word of God simply means that he displays and discloses who God is. Just as our words say everything about who we are, so Christ, who is the Word, says everything about who God is. Christ, who is the Word, displays God because he is God. In other words, to call him the Word is simply another way of saying that the God who is invisible became visible when he came to earth as a man. We have to get it through our heads that Jesus Christ is not the founder of a religion. But the infinite God Himself, who came to the planet that He created and became a literal historical human being. So the question is do you love Him? Do you love Christ? Not do you have sentimental feelings about him, but does his deity make him increasingly beautiful and exhilarating to your soul? Because that's precisely what it means to be a Christian. Description number 10 of the king, the arsenal of the king, the arsenal of the king. Because it's been said, you should never bring a knife to a gunfight. But when you go to war with the king, it doesn't matter what you bring to the fight because you're going to lose and you're going to lose everything. When Christ shows up to the battlefield, make no mistake, he's coming for combat. He's coming for conflict. He's coming to pick a fight and you can see it by the weapons that he brings to the battle. Look at verse 15. And out of his mouth a sharp sword is coming out. Why? In order that with it he should strike down the nations and he himself shall rule them with an iron rod. We see the arsenal of the king here. And the first instrument that he carries is a sword. And this isn't some ceremonial commemorative sword used only for decoration. This isn't some prop used for dramatic effect. No, the term that John uses for sword here indicates a long, vicious, two-edged battle sword used for massive and violent execution. It is for slaughter. He wields it to strike down the nations. And yet you'll have noticed, of course, that this isn't the kind of sword that you hold in your hands. This one comes out of his mouth which is a graphic way to say that when he comes, he will slay and slaughter his enemies with the words of his mouth. That his words have death-dealing power, that his words are the instrument of execution because he spoke men into existence at the beginning and here he will speak them out of existence. Isaiah 11. This great prophecy of the Messianic Davidic king, it says this exact same thing. Listen to what it says. It says, and he shall judge the poor with righteousness. And he shall decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Here it is. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall slay the wicked. Because when armies go to war... They arm themselves with the latest technological firepower with tanks and guns and bombs and missiles and fighter jets. But when King Jesus goes to war, all he needs to do is speak. Weapon number two, look at verse 15. And he himself shall rule them with an iron rod. And you have to understand this iron rod, this is not just a symbol of power. This isn't a token or a badge or some prop to give the mere appearance of majesty. Rather, this is an instrument of destruction with which Christ will shatter the backbone of the Antichrist and his massive global empire. Psalm Psalm 2 verse 9 portrays this exact same reality, speaking about, rather speaking to the Messiah. It says this, you shall rule them, that is the nations, with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware see Christ is not going to come and put his name in a ballot and be voted in by the people he's not going to make great speeches and pose with babies and and win the hearts of the people no he is going to take what is rightfully his, and he is going to do it with absolute force and with absolute ease the only question is Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that it literally should be us against whom Christ wages war in the future? That it should be us who are slain by the sword that comes from his mouth? May we never, ever forget that the only thing we actually, truly, really deserve is wrath. And yet the only reason why we will never endure that wrath is because this king endured it in our place. Description number 11 of the king, the judgment of the king. The judgment of the king in what you're about to see is by far the most chilling description of the king, but I just report the facts. I just do what I'm told. Here's what the text says. Look at the end of verse 15 and it says and he himself tramples the winepress of the wine of the wrath of the anger of God, the almighty See, this is why his garment is drenched in blood. Because he tramples the winepress of the wine, of the wrath, of the anger of God. And in, in Isaiah chapter 63, he told us this very thing. We see the exact same thing in the text. Isaiah pictures for us this event. And you know what's going on here. A wine press is used as a metaphor for God's furious anger because you know how wine was made in the ancient days. A large vat or tank is filled with grapes, and someone gets into the tank and they crush the grapes, right? Well, here, instead of grapes, what fills the wine press is people, enemies, rebels against the High King, those who mocked God and belittled God and cursed God and shook their fist at God and, and, and who worshiped the beast and received his mark on their foreheads. In the day when the King comes to conquer, they will find themselves at the bottom of a winepress, crushed by the wrath of the Lion of Judah, and their blood will stain his garments. And what can we say when we see a text like this? What can we say to this? Grace, God's grace that pardoned and cleansed our sin and then we just put our hands over our mouths and we worship in silence. Final description of the king. Number 12, the supremacy of the king. The supremacy of the king and John saves the best for last. Look at verse 16. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name, having been written, here's what is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. There are some things written upon Christ that John is not able to decipher, and this is not one of them. Rather, written on his garment down to his thigh is one of the most devastating declarations of deity found in the pages of Scripture. And John saves this for last because if there is anything that should comfort your souls, that should soothe your souls in an age of terror, this is it. And yet what does it mean for Christ to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Have you ever thought about that? What does that mean? Well, to be the king means that Christ is infinitely superior to everyone who has ever called themselves a king. He is matchless and unrivaled and in absolute sovereign control and has infinite authority over everyone and everything. No one tells him what to do and he answers to no one. And to be the Lord of Lords is his deity. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh, the infinitely worthy one. Anyone who claims to be important or noteworthy or significant or influential are nothing compared to Christ. There's him and there's everybody else. There's him and there's no one like him. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And even the most majestic ruler this world has ever seen is not fit to clean the blood off the sword of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. See, this This is the king you have been waiting for. He is the fulfillment of your deepest longings. He is the solution to every complex issue of the soul. He is the solution to every dilemma of life. This is your king. And he will single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. And that was a real whopping point. And that's our first riveting feature of the second coming. Which brings us, of course, to the second and final feature of the second coming. Number two, the execution by the king. The execution by the king. And, you know, you've been around long enough to know, to taste that, that rage we feel in our souls when we see innocent people get oppressed. And we don't have to go very far back in the headlines to find an example of this. But, but when we see innocent victims endure unspeakable evil, when we hear of an army invading a nation that has no chance of defending itself, there's a certain rage that we taste in our souls. Like, for instance, the My Lai Massacre in Vietnam in 1968. Did, have, did you hear about this? Something snapped in this battalion of American soldiers. And they absolutely decimated this village, killing 500 unarmed people, many of them women and children. And when the world heard about this, they were outraged, as they should have been. And yet, and yet, when the king comes to claim his throne, he will wage war upon his helpless enemies. And even though they're going to have enough, presumably, enough firepower to unleash World War III, they won't stand a chance. It's going to be an absolute train wreck, an absolute disaster. It will be a massacre, and they will have no chance of defending themselves, and no one will mourn for them. We see the execution in verses 17 through 21. The warrior king has made his grand entrance into the world. CNN maybe we'll have, we'll have televised footage of his arrival thousands and thousands of times. All the earth knows that Christ is real and that he has returned. And at this point, Christ has probably taken his seat on the Davidic throne and he has claimed what is rightfully his. And then the execution begins in verse 17. Look at the text. And I saw literally one angel standing in the sun And he cried out with a great voice, saying to all the birds who are flying in heaven, come, be gathered for the great feast of God. You know, angelic beings in the book of Revelation, they are not cute, chubby babies with wings. They are messengers of destruction. And that's exactly the kind of message that this angel brings. And interestingly, John notes that he sees the angel standing in the sun, And the only way you can see something in the light of the sun is if what you're looking at is brighter than the sun. And so this blinding angelic being flies up high where everyone can see him high up in the stratosphere. And with an earth shattering voice, he proclaims a message of destruction. Only the audience of his message is not the people of the earth, but the birds of the earth. And his message is for them and is in verses 17 and 18. Look what he proclaims. Come, be gathered for the great feast. It's a dinner invitation. For The great feast of God, that you should eat the flesh of kings and commanders and mighty ones and horses and those who sit upon them and the flesh of all, both of the free and the slaves, the small and of the great. This is absolutely terrifying. See, the birds are invited to a feast. Only the feast to which they are summoned is not bird seed. it is people. Corpses, enemies of the high king, and yet what makes this so chilling is that the enemies of the high king, they aren't even dead yet, but they're about to be. The scene for the slaughter is found in verse 19. Look at the text. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies having been gathered to wage war against the one who sits upon the horse and with his army. Notice the showdown is between the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies in this corner, and Jesus Christ alone in this corner. The beast is none other than the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist himself, the heavyweight champion of the world at that time, in the future. And at this time in Revelation, in human history, he will achieve global, worldwide supremacy. He will be the most powerful and lethal man in the history of the world. Revelation 13 says, 13.3 says that when the Antichrist appears on the scene, the whole world will be amazed by his smooth-talking seductions. The world will love him and fawn over him and fall over themselves to gladly receive his mark on their forehead and on their hands. And then chapter 13, verse four, even goes on to say that Satan will give him his very authority. He will give his authority to the beast, which means the Antichrist will have a Satan-inspired master plan and no one will be able to challenge him, except one, of course. As for the kings of the earth who are with him, Revelation seventeen twelve says that these are ten kings, ten kings that have joined the antichrist in this global alliance, this anti-Christian alliance. And seventeen verse thirteen says that they shall give their money and their authority, or that they shall give their power and authority to the beast, which is to say, they gi- they will give their money and their military to be at his disposal. And yet, and yet, with the beast's authority and reign threatened by the arrival of Christ, he gathers his massive army, which is really just a desperation move. I mean, this is, this is a Hail Mary from hell. That, that's all this is. They bring their little bombs and their little tanks and their little guns and their little fighter jets to play with. And they assemble probably just outside of Jerusalem on a massive battlefield somewhere. And it's here where the showdown begins. Verse 19, they have been gathered to wage war against the one who is sitting on the horse and with his army. Notice they're not confused at all against whom they're waging war, is it? They know that it's Jesus. Christ will be outnumbered probably millions to one. They'll probably have state of the art warfare at their disposal. Christ will only have a sword in his mouth and a rod of iron in his hand, and yet they actually think they stand a chance. It's sad. It's it's pathetic. We could almost feel sorry for them. In Revelation 13, 4, the world cried out, Who is able to wage war with the beast? Well, there is one who is able. And seemingly before even a single shot is fired... In a very anticlimactic moment, the battle is seemingly over before it has even begun and the massacre by the king begins. Look at verse 20. And it says, the beast was seized and with him the false prophet, the one who did the signs before him with which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image and they were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns With brimstone. The text says that the Antichrist and the false prophet were seized like flimsy little rag dolls. They are picked up or thrown down. And these two diabolical leaders of the world are dealt with a death blow. But notice, Christ doesn't merely execute them. He doesn't merely publicly depose them in front of all. Look what the text says happens. Verse 20 describes their horrifying end like this. It says, they were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Interestingly, the word alive is the very first word In the Greek text, John violates normal Greek word order and and puts alive at the very beginning. Literally, the Greek text says, living, they were cast, the two into the lake of fire. The point is he thrusts it at the beginning to emphasize the terrifying reality that they will be thrown conscious into the lake of fire where there'll be tormented day and night forever and ever and then and then with the antichrist and the false prophet publicly banished to the lake of fire christ moves on to the kings and the armies and the millions who followed after them look at verse 21 and the rest were killed with the sword of the one who sits upon the throne sits upon the horse with a sword that came out of his mouth and all the birds literally were satisfied from their flesh. The scene is terrifying and yet it's in the Bible. And the slaughter here will be swift and violent. The kings, the armies, the soldiers and the millions who worship the beast will be slaughtered by the sword that comes out of the mouth of the king. And all this time the birds are waiting perched for their meal. And after the slaughter, they move in for the feast. Verse 21 ends the scene like this. And all the birds were satisfied from their flesh. Literally, fleshes, plural in the Greek. And that's the end. That's, that's the surprise ending of all human history. You just saw it. And that's exactly how it's gonna go down. Scene by scene, blow by blow, event by event, that is the ending of all human history. And yet I close with this. Judgment is not all Christ is going to do, is it? Because this return to wage war and this return to give vengeance, this is just the beginning of the end. Because infinitely more than that, Christ is going to establish physically, literally, publicly, visibly on this planet, his kingdom, and he will rule the universe from a throne in Jerusalem. And he himself will overturn every bogus law. He will personally shut down every corrupt corporation. He will execute every tyrant and terrorist he will level every abortion clinic to the ground. Enemies will be conquered. Dictators will be deposed. Nations will be overthrown. The tyrant of Islam will be destroyed. Israel will be saved and restored to the land and with sinless, glorified bodies. Revelation 20, verse 6 says that we shall be priests of God and of Christ and we shall reign with Him for a thousand years and it will be and He will be everything you have been waiting for. I close with this. Several years ago when Haley was a little kid, I used to read the Chronicles of Narnia to her, read all the books to her before she went to bed. And in those stories, the chief character is Aslan the lion, king of Narnia, who you know is designed to be a symbol, a picture of Christ. And in The Lion, which in the Wardrobe, there was this prophecy about the return of Aslan to Narnia that everybody knew about and everybody was hoping in. And the prophecy went something like this. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter will meet its death. And when he shakes his mane, he will have spring again. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this reality stuns us. Seeing texts like this, it makes us feel how small and puny we are, and for that we give you thanks. Oh, King of kings and Lord of lords, we worship you. We worship you as the one to whom all allegiance is due. We worship you as the great high king who answers to nobody, the one who has all sovereign authority. And I pray that you would empower us now to be a people who proclaim you to others fearlessly, courageously, compassionately, even with tears in our eyes. Oh Lord, move us, move this church to be an instrument of the great commission to proclaim you as king. We give you thanks for this. It gives us courage. It soothes our soul in an age of terror and we give you thanks. And it's in your matchless name we pray. Amen.